please be seated. You can take your copy of the Word of God and open with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. For our third scripture lesson this morning, if you'd like to follow along inside of your bulletin. I believe this passage speaks of expectations. What are your expectations in life? Your expectations for yourself and for your future. What are your expectations of the kingdom of God and his king, Jesus, in your life? I believe this passage probes those questions. And I want to look at it for a few moments this morning and make some observations before we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God's illumination upon our minds this morning as we study the Word together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him alone. We wish to rejoice at the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep. So speak to our hearts of eternal things through your word that we might be challenged and changed this morning. The greater disciples of you, Lord Jesus Christ. We make our prayer in your name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, Great Expectations. It's one of Charles Dickens' most famous novels. In that great story, he tells of an orphan boy named Pip who becomes the object of a wealthy benefactor's kindness. The benefactor is anonymous, and this anonymous person makes it clear they have great expectations for Pip, what he will turn out to be in this life. And so the benefactor leaves a great deal of land and therefore financial resources. Pip is able to leave his uncle's blacksmith shop, a common trade in those days, to go to London and become a gentleman. And he wants to do this because he's met a young woman named... I forgot her name now. Anyway, he met a young woman, I think it's Estrella, and he wants to have her. He loves her from the very beginning, from the time he lays his eyes on her. But this prompts him to have expectations for himself. He knows that I'll never have a chance, I'll never have an opportunity with Estrella unless I become a gentleman. Now his expectations are shattered, and I won't tell you why, but he makes a discovery in the middle of the movie, at the climax. And he learns after that some powerful lessons. The main one being that affection and loyalty and conscience are more important in life than social advancement, or great wealth, or class. You see, Pip had to have his expectations shattered so that he might see reality. The reality of his life, the reality of Estrella, the reality of what true happiness, true joy, and true meaning is all about. I think that's the case often with Advent and Christmas. We approach the Advent season often 
talking about joy and enjoying parties, Christmas parties and gatherings and socials and that sort of thing. And yet, our lives have unfulfilled expectations. We live in a world of sin. We live in a world that has impacted our lives personally, our families, the places where we work and recreate. Sin has caused a great deal of misery and anger. But Advent means that in the midst of all of our misery and anguish, God sent His one and only Son to give us a sense of hope, a sense of true joy, downward and inwardly, and a sense of meaning and purpose in life. This passage is a wonderful display of how to deal with expectations, often faulty expectations or unfulfilled expectations. I want you to notice three things quickly this morning. Number one, Jesus corrects John's expectations, John the Baptist, his expectations, in verses 1 through 6. And then secondly, Jesus offers instruction about John in verses 7 through 15. And then thirdly, Jesus challenges our expectations in the little parable he includes in verses 16 through 19. First of all, I want you to notice John corrects, or Jesus corrects John's expectations. John has been thrown in prison, we know, from other accounts in the Scripture. He does not appear to be doing the things, or Jesus doesn't appear to be doing the things that John preached about. You remember when John approached the scene in his own day, he preached and taught. Last week we learned that, that Jesus was going to be one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. That Jesus would be the one who would be the great judge and separate the wheat from the chaff. Now John hears things about Jesus while he is in prison. He has doubts. And he sends a delegation of his disciples to Jesus to deal with those doubts. Now let's take a little side road for a moment. The prophets speak of the coming of Messiah in two basic ways. Number one, as the ruling King of kings and Lord of lords to whom the nations will submit. And also, in contrast, as a suffering servant, fulfilling the will of God on behalf of God's elect people. The first advent of Messiah is that suffering servant, as the Lord came in human flesh to die on the cross for sin. The second advent of our Lord Jesus, which we wait for now, is that triumphant advent, where he will be the ruling king of all kings. Jesus must suffer and die and rise again in order to enter into his glory. In summary, John has the first advent of Christ confused with the second. John is looking for one who will do these marvelous things that he spoke of. But Jesus here responds to John's doubts from Isaiah 35 and chapter 61. Go and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The coming of Messiah, the advent of Messiah, did not square with what John was looking for. It would involve healing bodies and the broken lives of God's people, of preaching the gospel to the poor, 
Jesus' first advent was to make God known and personal to His people. He came not to deal with Rome. He came to deal with human sin, to kill it, put it away. Jesus must correct John because John's expectations, not because they're inaccurate, but because they're incomplete. Let me challenge you with that this morning. So often we approach Christ and Christianity with incomplete expectations about what God is doing in our lives, what His kingdom looks like in our hearts. We have expectations that I'll marry one day and have children, but then I don't marry. Some people become bitter over that. I had expectations of a great marriage, but it fell apart. I had expectations that my child would turn out and love the Lord God, but he or she didn't. And there was great disappointment. Bottom line is, we don't know all that the Lord is doing. And that's why we seek to study the whole of sacred Scripture, so that our expectations of the Lord would be in line with what He has in store in His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, Jesus had to correct John's expectations. And then notice in verses 7 through 15, He uses this occasion to speak about John, to offer some instructions about John. John's followers return in verse 7 to their master and report Jesus' words. But their question had apparently been asked or posed in a large public gathering. And so if John were having doubts, you can imagine all the people listening to Jesus might start to doubt themselves. Is Jesus really who he said he was? Why is John having doubts? They may even start to doubt John's role. And Jesus addresses these questions by reassuring his audience of the legitimacy of John's prophetic ministry. In fact, Jesus commends John's ministry, and at the same time, he demonstrates, through commending John's ministry, he demonstrates the greatness of himself as God's Messiah. I want you to notice quickly, he speaks of three things. Number one, John's appeal. Secondly, John's greatness. And thirdly, John's reception. First of all, John's appeal in verses 7 through 10. Jesus offers the same rhetorical question three times. What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? And the purpose of his question is to lead the crowd to realize why they were so attracted to John's message and ministry. Verse 7, they did not go into the wilderness to listen to a spineless nobody. They were driven because they believed John had a message. Verse 8, they did not go because John was a prominent, successful religious leader, living a life of ease and comfort and pleasure, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Now, in verse 9, Jesus reveals the precise reason why the crowd was so drawn and attracted to John the Baptist, because he was a prophet indeed. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. You see, for 400 years, since the time of Malachi to this day, Israel had heard nothing from the Lord. These people were hungry for an authentic word from God. And it came through John the Baptist. His lifestyle, his very person, his message was so utterly different that they knew he was a prophet. They were hungry for an authentic word from God. 
And it came through John the Baptist. And they were eager to hear and respond to John's message, which is why they went out into the wilderness, into the desert. John was not just any prophet. He was the last in a series of prophets who prepared the way for Messiah. And he brought the Old Covenant error to its culmination. This is why Jesus points to John in Malachi 3.1. He says he's the forerunner of the Lord. So in summary, Jesus is saying, you've been waiting for four centuries to hear and receive a word from God. And now it is here, not simply through John's preaching, but the object of his message is me, the incarnate word of God who has come to make God known to you and intimate to you. That's why he's here. And they were drawn to John because of his paving the way for Jesus. A second thing Jesus points out, not only John's appeal to the crowd, but also John's greatness. Look at verse 11. Jesus tells the crowd there was no one greater than John, except he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he kind of an enigmatic statement. What does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus is emphasizing the fact that John is indeed the climax of the Old Covenant. Even the least in God's kingdom will surpass the greatest under the old era. The splendor of the New Covenant surpasses that of the Old Covenant. And these blessings include once-for-all forgiveness of sins, immediate access to God's presence, and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus signals that John was indeed a great, great man, but everything that John stood for, the whole of the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, is now being replaced as the New Covenant is ushered in. And even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. In summary, the ministry of John the Baptist signals the end of the Old Covenant, and it is replaced with a new covenant in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the pinnacle, or excuse me, John was the pinnacle of greatness under the Old Covenant. But even the least of the people of God is greater under the New Covenant. And Jesus makes it clear from Malachi 3, 1 and 2 that he is the messenger of the covenant. As such, he ushers in the new covenant in the kingdom of God, available to all who repent and exercise faith in him. Do you see what John is doing or what Jesus is doing? He's speaking of the greatness of John. But the greatness of John is passed over by the greatness of the kingdom that he is ushering in. Thirdly, he speaks of John's reception in verses 12 through 15. Now, Jesus has spoken highly of John the Baptist as his forerunner. Nevertheless, John, the man and his message, will be opposed. You see that in verses 12 and following. In fact, the whole of the dawning of the kingdom of God through the Lord Jesus will be opposed. The reception will not be pretty. In verse 12, John and his message will experience a violent reception. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. John and his message will experience a violent Reception. It'll be the beginning of a violent reception. And since John's arrival and Jesus' arrival, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. What does he mean? Well, what he means is 
people, because of their expectations, want the kingdom of God to fit their expectations rather than God's. From the early days of John's ministry to the present moment in Jesus' life, God's reign has not been warmly received, but coldly rejected. John preached in the wilderness, and it convicted Herod. It upset his wife for legitimate reasons, and they had John thrown in prison. Even the religious leaders, even now, they have increased opposition to Jesus. Many in the crowd are discontented with Jesus, his refusal to promote revolution. You know, there are all kinds of reasons why people follow Jesus. In John chapter 6, it was because he furnished bread. Their expectation of Messiah was to feed and to clothe them and to take care of their material needs alone, apart from spiritual needs. In verse 13, Jesus reiterates the fact that the law and the prophets culminate in John. And John was the last of the prophets of the Old Order, the Old Covenant. And look at verse 14. Jesus expands on what he said in verse 10, namely, that John the Baptist is not only the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah, John is also the forerunner of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus means by revealing that John is Elijah to come. See, conscientious Jews knew that the coming of Elijah, whatever that looked like, signaled the arrival of the kingdom. That's why in John chapter 1, the religious leaders asked John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? Are you one of the prophets? There was speculation that the prophets or Elijah would be reincarnated. That's not what the Scripture meant. And John came, according to Luke's Gospel, in the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah. He was indeed the Elijah to come, just not as people had expected. And John is the herald of both the king and the kingdom. Nevertheless, Jesus and his kingdom, as well as John, will experience a violent reception and a growing opposition all the way to the cross. Now, what I want you to see here is not only these three things, but collected together, John's appeal, John's greatness, and John's reception all point to Jesus. His appeal, his greatness, and the reception that he will have. He is God's Messiah. Jesus is the Word incarnate. You want a word from God? He tells the people of that day, the Word is here in the person and work of my Son, the Lord Jesus. You want greatness? John's greatness could not be passed by anyone born of a woman. And yet the least in the kingdom is greater than he, and that means the king is greatest of all, the Lord Jesus. Look to him. John had a terrible reception, and he would end up losing his life in prison. But Jesus also would have a terrible reception that would be infinitely greater than John's because he would be crucified on a cross. And his death involved not only physical pain and death, but the spiritual absence of the Father for a time as Jesus paid for human sin. You see, Jesus' appeal and greatness and his reception far and away exceed John the Baptist. And everything that John stood for pointed to Jesus. 
in our embracing of him. Let me challenge you with your expectations this morning. Do you see the events and circumstances of your life as pointing to Jesus? Is there a sense of contentment? I love the words of John 3 as I listen to John the Baptist when they come and they tell him, well, Jesus is baptizing more than you. Everybody's going to him. John speaks of being Christ's servant. He must increase and I must decrease. And he speaks of himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And he loves to hear the bridegroom's voice. And he rejoices with great joy when he hears the voice of the bridegroom, the great shepherd of the sheep. You know, when you're a Christian, and you're walking with God, there is nothing greater than hearing the voice of the shepherd. And I hope you know what I mean by that. In the quietness of your heart and your devotions as you read the Word of God, you experience the very presence of Christ. And He fills your heart with joy. There have been times where I'm praying and reading God's Word and I just break out crying. My heart is so moved and touched because I hear the shepherd. And that's what it means to abide in Christ. I want every day to be able to hear His voice. Not just in my ear, not at all in my ear, but in my heart. So that I follow Him in obedience. Well, you'll notice quickly, Jesus finally, with all of this in mind, challenges our expectations. He concludes with a parable in verses 16 through 19. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the point of the parable is simple. It illustrates those who respond to Christ and His kingdom with criticism or indifference. Just like children playing in a marketplace, they refuse to participate. There is no pleasing them. John came living a holy life, and they labeled him as demon-possessed. Jesus came as a friend of sinners, and they labeled him a drunk and one who lives according to excess. In summary, the little parable points out that for the vast majority, John was too holy, and Jesus wasn't holy enough, frankly, for their taste. Jesus ends by saying, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. See, in the wisdom of God, both the contrasting appeals of John and Jesus have their appointed place. John represented God's holiness, and Jesus demonstrated God's love and grace and mercy for sinners. Jesus is saying, as one commentator puts it, God's wisdom is vindicated, that is justified, by the very deeds which scandalize those who will not respond. The proof is in the pudding, in the eating of it. When people respond with indifference, when they respond with criticism or cynicism, they are demonstrating the very wisdom of God. Because only God can open a heart. And spiritual things don't make sense to people who are lost and outside of the kingdom. They will be cynical. They will be indifferent. Let's look at our own lives this morning. Have the circumstances of my life led me to become indifferent to Christ? Led me to become critical of Christ, His kingdom, His church, and everything else? 
That's a dangerous place to be. There's an appeal or an invitation in this little parable. Respond to God's holiness and love by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the conclusion is don't fall prey to faulty expectations about Christ and His kingdom in your life. Responding to Christ with criticism and indifference. You know, most of the time we don't have the whole story. I was traveling in on Dale Mabry Highway this morning to church, which is always a challenge to sanctification. <laughs> People do all kinds of crazy things. I don't know what it is about Tampa. But anyway, I pulled up to a big intersection. And you know, you wait until the light turns. and People cross when they're supposed to. You see the hand was red. You know, you're not supposed to cross and that sort of thing. Well, the hand was up there, and this woman decides she's going to cross Dale Mabry Highway. All five or six lanes in this particular intersection. And, of course, the light turned green. And I could not go without causing great bodily harm. Walking very short. You know. And all of a sudden, somebody's laying on the horn behind me. <laughs> and I thought, you can go ahead and get mad. You better not. It's Sunday morning. You know, you're supposed to deliver a message. You can go ahead and get mad. Or you can realize that person doesn't have the full picture. They're not seeing what I see. And I can realize and have pity because there's many times that I've been the one back there. And I couldn't see the whole picture. We go through life like that, ladies and gentlemen. We don't see the full picture. But the Lord God Almighty does. And He who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the very day of Christ Jesus. It's why Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Because I am listening to the voice of the shepherd. And I am abiding in him. And with all the aforementioned in mind, let's return to John's original question at the beginning. Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? The answer is a resounding yes. Jesus is the long-awaited and much expected Messiah and Savior of sinners. Take care not to go looking for someone or something else other than Him. Advent is a wonderful time to realign all our expectations about life to His expectations for us. Namely, be conformed to the image and likeness as sons and daughters of God, regardless of our situation and circumstance. Let's all realign our expectations this Christmas, this Advent, as we continue to watch what Jesus does in our hearts and lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do see the big picture. Lord, often we don't, and our expectations become faulty or insufficient. Lord, may we live with the singular expectation to become more and more conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, continue to do your good, pleasing, and perfect will in every one of us. And I pray this morning, if there's one or more here today that have never embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that, Lord, you would move on their hearts and draw them to yourself with your great appeal and show them the greatness of your salvation and glory in their lives. Lord, do all these things and more we give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name.